you ever play a game when you're growing up or buy a game called a Jack in a Box? Do you remember that? You go, you, you shove the thing down in the box and you go and you, and you, and you do the lever. Ta -da, ta -da, ta -da, ta -da, and then, up, go to the window, pop up. And you shove it down again. And uh, it pop up again. I remember breaking that thing, trying to shove that Jack in the Box down. It drove me crazy as a kid. But many people enter into marriage and relationships, or especially marriage, with high hopes of living happily ever after, right? You know, that in the midst of a cold, impersonal world that we're going to have a, a relationship and a marriage that's different, that's loving and gentle. And, and, uh, and the problem, however, is that, and so we also say, I'm going to be different than my parents. I'm not going to live it out like my parents did. We're going we're gonna to do better than my, our parents did. We're going to raise our kids better. We're going to be more successful. We're going to do better in life than our kids and our, than our parents. And uh, we're going to show the world what a real relationship in love is going to look like. And so we, we shove the jack-in-the-box down. But then what happens generally in marriage over the years is that um, the jack-in-the-box pops up. And a lot of the issues, going back to our families, end up popping up in our marriages. And it may have been the way that you related to your mom or your dad, or the way that your parents related to each other, and the way your family functioned. But before you know it, the thing pops up. And there's all this stuff from your families in your marriage. And before you know it, it's not that different at all than you had hoped it would be many, many years later. And in fact, you end up just giving in and saying, well, just the way it is. And you accept it and you just kind of go along. Because the jack-in-the-box seems to always pop up. And so, uh, you know, even the way sometimes the anger between a father and son ends up being translated right down to the, your, your son, you might have, and moving down the, down, the, down the track. Now, in this passage here, in verse 24 is our text, we're going to talk very simply about two things this morning leaving and cleaving, okay? Very simply, two things, leaving and cleaving. What does that even mean? Now, most of us have read this passage or heard it a thousand times in weddings, and if you're like me, in most weddings, you're hungry, looking forward to the reception, your stomach is grumbling, and these words kind of just fly right past you as a little bit of sentimental value, but they don't really mean very much. So I just want to really take apart just one verse today and go into it, and because there's such depth and power here that if you can grab hold of this this morning, it will transform your marriage if you're married here. And if you're single, uh, it will transform the way you relate to folks of the opposite sex as you think about possibly getting married in the future. And uh, so uh, let's go. Let's read one, again, one more time. Verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave, there's a leave word, his father and mother, and be united. That was the word for cleave in the New American Standard. Cleave or be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. All right. So... Here's the context of what's going on. You've heard people say, all I need is Jesus. All I need is Jesus. You heard that? That's, not, that's a lie. That's not true. All you need is not Jesus. You need more than Jesus. Now, I say that because look at verse 18. When God created the world, he said everything was good. It was beautiful. It is good. It is good. It is good creation, the stars, the universe. He creates man. He said, this is very good. This is, literally it means, this is spectacular. This is beautiful. But then in verse 18, there's one thing that God says is not good. And in verse 18, it's God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And uh, you see, God made Adam and God made you to need more than God. Isn't that, isn't that humble? What a God we, we serve. That, what humility that God would create creatures that need more than him to be full. He wired you and me for, for community. He wired you and me for relationships with other people. That's why when you self-protect and isolate, you're killing part of the image of God in you. Because you were created for relationship. And so loneliness existed before the fall. That's why sometimes when we're lonely, it's not bad. 
There's different types of loneliness. But Adam was lonely before sin ever entered the world. It was, he was just lonely. So anyway, God creates, you know, so God says, all right, Adam, you know, just uh, verse 19. He says, all right, now, now take the beasts of the fields and name them. And so Adam named, you know, all come, hippos are coming and elephants and lions. And you're a lion, you're a hippo, and you're a penguin. And he liked all these animals, but, you know, he didn't want to spend the night with any of them. And so Adam, when he's finishing naming all these, he's lonely still. So God puts him to sleep, and out of his rib takes and forms Eve. And he sees Eve, and he's, wow, and he, and he, and he sings over her. That's, you bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And, and then in verse 25, it, it gives this, 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 this verse, which, which is really the hardest step for most couples to make. And in fact, it is perhaps the greatest problem that leads to most other problems in marriages. And it says this. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. Okay, the first point is going to be about leaving. Now, let me explain what leaving means. Literally, it means to leave means to forsake or to detach yourself from your parents, from your family. Okay, it, it's a word used forsaking other gods. That's the word. Doing away with them. Now, it's a severing and a cutting of bonds. It says this. You're to marry and you're to leave. You're to cut the bonds with your family. As you form a new family with new priorities and new values. Now, he's not talking about... Now, listen. Families were honored in the time of the ancient Near East much more than they're honored today in the West. I mean, families do not... I mean, some of our cultures here, some of the Asian cultures or, or Mid-Eastern cultures in our midst, there's a real family bond. And, and we all experience that, of course. But in the ancient Near East, I mean, this, was, this, this verse was so radical to call for forsaking or leaving your family. Because the family bond was so intense, it was so tight, that this was radical, striking. God said, you are to leave that family as you now marry and form another one. And uh, it's starting, it's God saying you're going to start a whole new relationship with a new core, at core, loyalty and a priority. In other words, it's not your parents' priorities anymore, it's not your parents' values anymore, nor is it your parents as the primary influence you are to say to your mom and dad and look at them and say, Mom and dad, thank you. Uh, but I no longer owe you loyalty. I value you and I'm grateful for what you've done. But uh, your words now have no power over me. The words of my spouse do. And that's why the ritual of a marriage ceremony is in a sense to demonstrate that cutting and that severing. Now, in other words... Children who marry must cut the cord. And, uh, you know, the issue is not geography because in the ancient Near East, they had as many as three to six families living in one house in a time when this was written. So it's not talking about geographically running away. It's much deeper than that. You see, many of us, are you ready for this, have never left our homes who've been married 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You see, your family, your, your, your mom and dad can be dead and you still never left. You see, the issue is we are a new family, and the issue is not geography. We are to cut and to create and shape a path to what God has for us as a new family. Now, this is very tough because, you know, my parents are blood. You know, I love them, and they've loved me, and it's been a safe place, and now I marry, and now i got problems. I, you know, it's insecure. Who knows if you're going to leave me? You're not, you know, you we're supposed to be blood, but I don't know. It's difficult. There's misunderstandings, and, and it's, so, it's so hard. It takes faith to leave. It takes radical faith to leave because this is new and this is hard. This is painful. 
And I don't know where it's going. It's like moving out into a boat into a storm. And many folks, even married, stay home because it's safe. But there's a radical faith to which God calls us to in relationships and marriage. Now, here's the problem. Ready? The problem is, for most of us, the baggage of our families continues to shape us. And so psychologically and relationally, our families of the past, our parents, or our families, or foster parents, have more influence on our present marriage than does the Word of God. That's the truth. I'll say it again. <clears throat> relationally and psychologically, our parents, even though we're married, have more influence on our relationship as a married couple than really does the Word of God. You know, in other words, the failure to shift loyalty from your first family to now your new one is one of the primary causes of problems all through marriages. Let me give you an example, a very simple example. You may have seen this. You can have a fellow who, who's, a, who's a strong, forceful leader, runs a company in business, CEO, married, but then when his mother comes over to visit three, four times a year, he becomes once again a little boy, a toddler, and crumbles, and, 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 and she now is taking care of him all over again. And the, his wife, of course, is totally frustrated by the, this, this new change of relationship. But few men really ever leave their homes, even after marriage. And that's really quiet here. <laughs> Hang on. Few men ever leave their families to form new ones. I mean, I, I, I can think of people in their 60s and 70s who've never left home, even though they've been married and have grandchildren. They're so tied psychologically and relationally to, what's, to the way their family functions. They've never left. Now, think of the cultures we have here. We have many. European cultures. I think of Greeks. I think of you know, Russians. I think of Mideastern folks, Arabs and Jews. I think of you know, Asians and Chinese and Filipinos and all those cultures we've got here. Your parents can be 10,000 miles away and still be running your marriage. And they may never want to, or they don't have a desire to. They've never opened up their mouth. But the truth is, like a dominant shadow, they dominate. And so much is done either in reaction to them, to show we're not under your lordship, we're free. But really, your whole life is one of reacting. Or very subtly, because you're not aware of it, you've allowed yourself to, to be controlled. I, you know, I think of this fellow Clay, you know, he's been, always been a good boy. I'm making up the name, okay? Just, don't worry, there's no Clay here. <laughs> You know, codependent on his mom his whole life, you know, and mama's boy and good boy. You know, we do what mommy wanted. And, and he gets married, but he's still in that whole mom. He married a mom. And he's still in that same kind of functioning, just translated people. And, but he's never found out who he is or what he wants and never grew up. And so he never left. And so you've never even begun the first step of being a marriage, which is leaving. And you wonder why there's all kinds of problems. You know, for my wife and I, for example... For us to leave, you know, for me, I came from a family of, of strong uh, workaholics. You know, my grandfather built the subway system, you know, Italian immigrant and bakery system. Hard-working family. Very hard-working family. And so it was built into my genes a certain role of a father and a husband of workaholism that had tremendous implications for intimacy. There wasn't really a lot of time for that because you're working so hard to make ends meet. And so for me to have to leave required breaking free which was not painless by any means 
of how I related to women, how I related to family life, and a whole workaholism, and finding my identity in work versus God. Now, to get in touch with that and to leave that, friends, was not getting a simple prayer and being knocked down on the floor. For my wife, her family was very task-oriented, very, you know, very, 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 a lot of activity, a lot of movement. But large, she had a large family, seven children, so there wasn't a lot of time to feel because you had to get, you know, it was just a big family. And you tend to get shut down a lot. And, and so for her to leave her family has meant the whole way that they related as a family, her whole first 21 years relating, and then she came to Christ, and then having a marriage now in God, to leave that way of relating and now to begin to have a thing called intimacy and listening and vulnerability and weakness. I mean, she had no, she had no skills for that. That's not the way you relate in families. But she had to leave it. Now, that was very painful and has been, and not a simple thing to do. To leave that and now to create a new family with me and to move on to what God has for us. Now, there's a parallel in the spiritual life. It'll help you understand it a little bit. Many of you were, were, were spiritually maybe shaped in a, in a certain type of church, or maybe you became a Christian in a certain type of denomination. And, 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 and like that shaped you. But then it was really time to move on. And it's so difficult to move on because even though you intellectually know you need to and should, but there's something in you that says, I'm staying here. And, and it's like it's so difficult to leave. Even spiritually, our roots as God's moving us on. I mean, I, I see God taking our church right now to new places. You know something? It's hard for me to leave. As God, I believe, is taking us into a place of maturity and depth and how we understand the Christian life, how we look at each other, how we relate in ways that I never dreamed were going to happen to us as a church. But I feel I'm leaving some things, and I'm just and on a minor scale, which are painful just even spiritually. And so leaving, friends, is really often never done. And, uh, and yet there's two, there's two issues that come up with this leaving thing. The first is this. To leave, you've got to be able to say, I'm, I'm not going to look for my parents to bless me anymore. Well, let me explain that. Many of us are working hard to get our mom and dad to say to us just once, just once, I love you and I respect you for who you are. And we never got it from our parents. Most of us never got it from our parents. So our parents never got it from their parents. We go on and on, right? We all have dysfunctional families. I know, I know, I know. Adam did too. Adam and Eve. Okay, okay we all, we're all in the same boat here, okay? So we all came from imperfect parents. And so we all want this blessing for just once in my life that my foster father or my mother, somebody will say, I love you. And, and, we, and, we, and we work like crazy to get it. We're never aware of it, but it's like we're just, even if they're dead, we're looking for it. Just that one precious moment when, when dad will look me in the eye and say, son, I respect you. I think you're great. But the reality is, you know, our, our souls are hungering for that blessing. And, uh, and uh, what happens is we work for it. And, and so you, we want someone to glory in you. You say, I want someone to glory in me and who I am. Now listen, to leave requires this. It's saying this. I will be able to live and move on with my life even if I never get that from my mom or dad. Yes, it breaks my heart, but I can live and move on with my life even if I never get it. Until you say that, Yes, it breaks my heart. Don't get numb to that. But I'm going to move on with my life, and I can live. Now, second and related issue is to leaving requires that you face the bad memories of the past 
in your family life that continue to haunt you and shape you, and you look at them honestly and you say, thank you, God, because you use that to make me the person I am today. Those that all of us come from families, again, that have pain and hardship in them. Even the very best of families, there's been abandonment or shaming or shutting people down or sexual abuse or emotional abuse or we go on and on, you know. And, and so when we think about entering into the past of all the muck of our family growing up, you know what? Many of us say, no way, I, that's a jack in the box. I'm shoving that down. That's under the blood. We shove it down. Not getting in my life or my marriage, really. But you have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to get to the other side. You know how many of us want to live our, our, our Christian lives? We want to live like on a, on, a, on a 747 flying at 600 miles an hour overhead. We don't want to walk through the valley of shadow of death. We want to fly over it. We want to skip the pain of remembering or looking back. Because you see, if you don't look back at what happened, do you know what happens? You end up repeating it. The purpose of looking back at what happened is so you're able to identify the tendencies of how you are idolatrous. What are your tendencies to sin? For example, if you experience a lot of abandonment, and so maybe perhaps you attach into relationships, in, a very, in your dating relationships, in a very unhealthy way, and you look for this person to almost be God because you never perhaps had a dad. Whatever happened there, something was missing, and so you suck in. Now, that's, that's just is. It's from your past. You've got this gap there, and so you end up naturally getting into un, very unhealthy relations with men or women. But the fact that you know that, I have a tendency to make relationships idolatrous. The fact that you know that, you're able to be aware and not move into that sin and say, no, God wants me to have healthy relationships. But unless you walk through the valley of the shadow of death of some of the pain of the past, you're doomed to repeat it. Are you following me, everybody? So you can shove the jack-in-the-box down and make believe it's not there, but it will come back up. Maybe it'll come back up when you're 40 or 50 years old, but it will come back up. And you will recreate the same way of relating in your family, eventually in yours. In your parents' family, in yours. In different manifestations and shapes, not exactly the same, but it ends up being there. And you're really never left. And you're still bound. And so, by, by thinking about them, I get free of them. Are you following me? By going back through that valley of the shadow of death and it is painful, one gets free. And so you can, you can, you can look at your, 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 your parents and, uh, and listen to how God used that story. You know, I look at, and you look and say, well, you know, like Joseph did in Genesis chapter 50. His, his brothers ripped him off, sold him out to slavery, ends up losing his family, his culture. If anybody got burnt by his family, it was Joseph. But he was able at the end of his life to see that God used all that pain as the soil to grow him into the man that he was today. And then he could say, thank you. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. So he blesses them. You have to come to a place where you can say, I bless you. You weren't perfect parents and they don't exist. But God used it for good to get me to where I am today and I bless you. And I thank you. That's honoring your parents. It's being able to say thank you instead of being bitter and angry at everything they weren't. And many of us are bitter and angry, and as a result, we're stuck and we can't leave. And so we drag this into every relationship we have, and you wonder why it's a big mess. But you know, sometimes you don't leave until you bless them, or even how much they hurt you, because God used it for good. All right. You know, the great reformers used to say in the 16th century, know God and know yourself well. If you're knowing God well, you come to know yourself well. 
and become a mature individual and grow up. Okay, so number one is leaving. Do I have an amen on that? Many folks, I'll say it again, in their marriages after many years, never leave. The call here in Genesis, firstly, is you are to leave. As you singles think about relationships with folks of the opposite sex, you want to make sure as you move into that, there's a healthy leaving that goes on or else you're just going to drag it all into your relationship. All right, number two, I'm going to simply call cleaving, which is the word, they shall leave his father and mother and be united. The word literally is cleave, or it means to stick. The man will stick to his wife. Think of stickums, is stick to his wife. Now, there's two aspects of this. The first is, is the emotional, and the second is the physical. We jump to the physical. Oh, yeah, sexual intercourse. I like that. But the sticking is first, it's an emotional sticking. And uh, it, it's talking about communing with your soul with your spouse. It's inter the word intercourse is the word used for, was used originally for verbal communication. Intercourse is I, I, I interpenetrate, my words penetrate your heart and your words penetrate mine. That's what the word originally meant of intercourse. And so we are to have emotional sticking or cleaving first. As a couple, we are to commune together. We're to share our, our stories. Now, as a couple here, we took you as a couple, you married folks here, and looked at your day timer or your schedule, your schedule would reveal whether or not you are cleaving. Because it takes time to cleave. There is no way to cleave on the run. It just doesn't happen. Cleaving takes conscious, deliberate time to listen and to know one another. It's not the time to talk about work. It's not time talking about money, problems, ministry, the house, kids. It's time to talk about you because I want to get to know you. And what are you feeling? My wife had a very busy you know, week and a half or week, really. And then we went, Thursday, went on a date. It was very simple. We went, went, to a, went for dinner, went to Manhattan, went to a museum. And the purpose of the dinner was simply to listen and to talk about nothing else but each other. But it takes a very deliberate, conscious effort. And we gotta just tell stories about, you know, just tell stories about events that were fearful for her growing up. And it was amazing, the stuff I learned about her, you know. And I told her about a, a story I hadn't thought of for years. Tommy Finn, my sophomore year, you know, and picking a fight with me in, in high school. Why was he, he started, you know, cutting me up and saying nasty things about me until he finally said, your mother wears army boots in the shower. At which point, I lunged at him with a fist and tried to knock him down. And at that point, he pinned me. And I don't know, all that stuff went on. But, but as I retold the story, I just remember the shame as he was just verbally in the locker room, just verbally knocking me around until he finally crossed the line where I finally lunged at him. And he, he says, nah, I finally got you. He, want, he was trying to, you know. And, but as I just talked about that, why did I let him go on and on like that, you know? And, but my family, you know, it was, it, was, it was a very, for me, it was very deep, you know, and I, I didn't remember that story, but she took the time to get it out of me. And she began to just talk about stories of her own brother growing up and getting on a plane for the first time, and she was 12, and he was 14, and, and what that was like when, when she wanted to sit near the window, and he yelled at her in front of everybody, and she's crying, and he said, I'm, I want to throw you off the plane, and all that stuff, you know, and, and what it was like to live with her brother Jimmy and being shamed all the time, and, you know, and, and it was like, wow, I just, you know, and it was really heavy. Now, you know, when you begin to tell stories like that, you review the story of how you met and how God was in that, you marvel. You say, wow, that's incredible. You know? and we've told a story of how we met you know, many, many times. Because it's like the Bible. You read the same story in the Bible, like the story of Genesis, of Joseph, and the 20th time you read the story, you get something new out of it. 
The prodigal son, you read hundreds of times, you get something new every time. You can tell the same stories to each other, and you get something new out of each time. Because every individual is so deep and complex. Remember, it's like the continent of Africa. You've maybe landed on shore, and you know them a little bit after 20 years. You've gone one mile into shore. There's an entire continent to explore of depth and complexity in this person. And what, what cleaving is, is saying, I am, want to know you. And we emotionally commune and connect. And we take the time to listen to each other's stories and to go deeper. And uh, we learn new things about each other. I, you know, we talked about how my, my wife dated my roommate in college. We were, neither were Christians, you know. And I remember her walking in for the first time, and she was cute, I thought. And then I became a Christian soon after that. I remember telling her about Christ, and, and then my roommate about Christ. And, and then, you know, she thought I was a fanatic. And, and then, you know, we both were in a college that neither of us wanted to attend, and how ironic we were there. And, and then she went to England to study, and she became a Christian, and she came back, and, and uh, you know, and then how we became friends for six, seven years, and we finally started. It was just the way God knit our lives together. We just said, what a marvel how we met and came together, and, and seeing the hand of God. And, and, but you tell these stories, you just begin to appreciate, and you commune, you cleave. And uh, this was not something one learns in one's family. Most families don't have anything about sharing stories. It, it rarely happens. And yet intimacy or, or, or cleaving requires that kind of a emotional communing. Now, it takes a few things, sharing these kinds of stories. It requires curiosity. Most people aren't curious. I'm curious to know you better. I know you enough. <laughs> and we stick in our marriage. It'll be fine, our relationship, you know. We retire together. Go play shuffleboard. But the curiosity, I mean, God's a curious God. Where are you, Adam? You know, asking questions and wanting to know that person better. You know, we're talking about availability. You don't do this being, if you're not available. That's why it's very difficult. I mean, most folks who are very highly productive and driven uh, rarely have intimacy in their marriages. I want to read you a quote from a book called The Mystery of Marriage because uh, it's just a beautiful quote by Mike Mason. And, and uh, it's a little long, but I want you to hear it. It's, it's, it's written so beautifully, I just couldn't improve upon it. He writes this, the problem with most troubled marriages is that both partners are trying to accomplish far too many things in the world. And in the process, like Mary in Luke chapter 10, they neglect the one thing needful. Next to the love of God, the one thing that is by far the most important in the life of all married people is their marriage, their loving devotion to their partner. Nothing on earth must take precedence over that, not children, not job not friendships, not even Christian work. As obvious as it sounds, this can be a most difficult priority to keep in perspective. What it amounts to finally is not that you must, that the bad and the selfish must be renounced, but also the, mo the most bewildering and difficult thing is that all the good and healthy things which must be renounced or postponed or watered down on account of the demands imposed by marriage. How many deep friendships that might have been are rendered impractical by marriage or must at least take a back seat to the primary friendship with one's spouse. How many wonderful activities are interrupted by marriage duties and how many good intentions and charitable plans must be set aside each day? How much energy that might otherwise have been put at the service of the church or the community is channeled instead into the work of marriage? Like Judas Iscariot, at the sight of Mary pouring out costly perfume over the feet of Jesus, we cry out, this ointment might have been sold and the money given to the poor. What offends us is the terrible waste of marriage. 
the waste of our precious lives being poured out over just one person. We would like to think of ourselves, perhaps, as having a great impact on the world, touching and influencing thousands of lives. How great is our frustration when we realize that we do not adequately touch even the one single life of the person closest to us. While the rest of the world runs after grandiose and unattainable ideals, married partners walk the humbler but more accessible walk of simply caring for one another from one day to the next. It is a task that is not very glorious from the point of view of the world, but one which could hardly be more important in the eyes of God. And it closes with... So the point is not that the exercise of love is so taxing and time-consuming that it must be limited to our homes. On the contrary, the vow to love one special person is intended to fill us up to the brim with love. He gives an example like a river flowing. To train us in the depths of what love is and so to free us to have much more love for others than ever before. And that God's purpose is that it be such a depth of love. And you've learned so much about love in that marriage that it overflows out into the world and of those around you. That's really captures it. It's availability, it's curiosity, but it's also blood. Because you know something? If I'm going to get to know you, it's painful to hear your story and enter into your pain. And uh, you don't want to listen to someone unless you're willing to bleed with them as you hear and get to know them. To weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. So let me close with this. You know, when you say to your wife, you know, or your husband, what do you dream of becoming in the next two to five years? What kind of person do you want to become? Or you say to them, what do you want to do in the next two to five years? What are your dreams? And you listen to that person, and then you say, you know, how can I be part of the process of that becoming a reality? How can I serve you in that process? That is beginning to emotionally cleave. Now, there's a second part of cleaving, which is the physical. And that's the sticking part of sex. That's the sticking of physical sexual intercourse. Now, sexual intimacy is to be the culmination of this emotional cleaving and leaving that has taken place. I like to picture it as, think of mountain peaks. God set up sexual intercourse as such a beautiful thing created by him that we are to climb the mountain in leaving and cleaving emotionally, spiritually, and so we climb them out, and, and sexual intercourse is the culmination of two, one two people becoming one flesh in union. But they have walked this path of leaving and cleaving together. And so for many people, jump from affair to affair, or immorality to immorality, and they don't, want, they don't want to climb the mountain. It's too much work, and it's too painful. I'll just have a quick sex with someone, have some physical satisfaction, but the problem is it never really satisfies. You end up feeling all these pains and wounds, and we've all got them, and... And you talk to people. and So sex outside of marriage works for a season, but there can never be true intimacy outside of marriage. And so, again, you, strangers can have sex, but not one flesh intimacy. A couple that's angry with each other and distant can have sex, but not one flesh intimacy. And so in Genesis 2.25, where he says, the man and his wife were both naked, they felt no shame. We're talking about 
where the sexual union is this complete vulnerability, no shame, there, there, there's no guilt. And I mean, for teenagers, I, I don't know how many teenagers we have here today. I don't, I don't know where some of them aren't here. I wish they all were here. But that's why, for, for next week will be sexuality. We'll go in some depth in this thing. But that's why, that's why the, the sexual act is such a glorious, beautiful thing within the context of marriage and why God has it that way because of the preciousness of it. But the damage done when you cut out of God's order and begin to do this in a way without that cleaving and leaving having taken place first creates all kinds of problems and damages and pains. And, and there's a world of difference between the physical act happening, and there is some pleasure that goes with that, but it's not the same glory that's experienced in the context of a solid marriage where there's been true leaving and true cleaving. That is when one enters into the glory of what cleaving is. But only in the context of that solid marriage where there's been walking through the valley of doing some leaving and done some cleaving. Okay, let me apply this very quickly in closing. Singles here. Um, there are many of you who need to work through some issues as you look forward to relationships so that you have healthy relationships. There is some leaving, there is some learning for you about how do I listen to people, how do I even have be intimate with other people emotionally because you don't have any of those kinds of skills and you don't want to go into it just trying to recreate what happened there in the past. And so there's some challenges for some of you singles and teenagers here in our midst as you think about your future and what kind of marriage and family you may have someday. And needless to say, there's many marriages in this room that as I've been speaking are in great pain as we spoke to quite a few even after first service. As you find yourself stuck, as you listen, as you maybe are hearing some of these things for the first time and say, I never understood all this at all, or never worked through these things. We just kind of jumped into this thing. And you think about the kind of work that this might entail and the kind of pain this might entail. And you say, I wish I, I don't want to hear this. I want to shut my ears and shove the jack back down in the box and hope this thing doesn't come up again. I hope you switch topics by next week. <laughs> because this could really be a mess. And that's right, it really could be a mess. One has to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to come to the promised land. You can't take an airplane and fly over it. You've got to walk on foot. But I tell you, there is a promised land on the other side. And it's God's intention for marriage his glorious, beautiful intention of what this thing was supposed to be. And in Christ, because of Jesus Christ, yes, there's been a fall and his thorns and thistles, but in Christ, God has made a way. He's not giving you the power of the Spirit so you can run from reality and shove the jackpot in the box. He's granting you the power of the Spirit and the Word of God and church so that you can move through the valley of the shadow of death and become a mature man, a mature woman. One of the great revelations for me, friends, that I've wrestled with our church and where we're going is God wants us to be a mature people and not use God to run from issues. Amen. Let's all stand, okay? I want to just encourage the couples in the room here that uh, to go this week and try to go on a time alone, a date and spend an hour to two hours together and try to tell some stories about yourself. And the other one, try to listen. Very practical application.